why are people losing their lives um, for you know, a democratic process that allows us to um, vote in our, the people that will represent our voices. Welcome to another episode of the Pacific Wayfinder podcast, brought to you by the Australia Pacific Security College. This episode features a conversation on the recent national election in Papua New Guinea, recorded at the State of the Pacific Conference, hosted by the ANU's Department of Pacific Affairs. This conversation is moderated by ANU's Dr. Colin Wilshire, who is joined by special guests Ariane Kuzman from Transparency International, PNG, and GJ Milley, PhD candidate at the ANU. Before we begin, the APSC would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we broadcast from today, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and we pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. Uh, hi, my name is Colin Wiltshire. I'm a research fellow at the Department of Pacific Affairs and I look at uh, political economy issues in Papua New Guinea. And I'm joined today by um, two special guests we've got here for the State of the Pacific Conference. Uh, we have Ariane from uh, Transparency International PNG that she heads up in Port Moresby. And we have GJ who is a recent, recently joined us as a PhD student looking at women's political quotas in PNG and she's had much experience with elections and a lot of her work focuses on Bougainville. So the ANU through the Department of Pacific Affairs conducted a large-scale observation of the recent 2022 PNG national elections. Uh, this was one uh, that we've done similar to the past where we've observed 2017, uh, 2012 and even we've uh, done election observations uh, in PNG uh, at ANU um, since independence. So it's been um, over about 40 years and we had up to 350 local observers in the field during the elections, and we covered more than a third of the country. So it was a very thorough research exercise um, that involved uh, local PNG observers who were heading up uh, multiple observer teams across the country, uh, and they were engaged for uh, about two months, and they covered the pre-polling, the actual polling day observations, and also post-polling, where they talk to citizens about their experience with the election, as well as doing observations of the electoral administration process. And um, we still don't have the, the findings, which we're currently analysing, but we were able to get uh, a broad overview, you know, of anecdotal experiences about the election. Um, but we also had other uh, partners and people working with there um, particularly Transparency International, who were in the field as well with their own observers. And so I'd um, like to ask Ariane, um, do you want to talk a bit about what your overall uh, findings or um, takeaways were from the recent national elections in PNG? Yeah, sure. Um, perhaps I'll start by also just giving an overview of our election observation uh, as well. Uh, so TIPNG fielded the largest uh, local or domestic um, election observation uh, group, uh, we also had about 350 observers that covered 20 provinces, so 20 out of the 22. Uh, but ours was limited to the polling uh, period itself. So looking at the conduct of polling, um, 
the management um, by the electoral uh, management body or the electoral officials that were there, um, and then providing um, an assessment, um, uh, not an assessment, but more of an observation of what was um, uh, what took place uh, during polling. Um, our we've released an initial uh, summary report um, already uh, to look at, uh, I guess, the initial um, issues or key findings that we've. Um, uh, seen, uh, but the final full report will come out um, in November, uh, where we will be hosting an elections uh, workshop to review findings and then look at the key recommendations we want to put forward. Uh, but in terms of initial, I guess, findings, uh, the first uh, issue we saw uh, largely across the whole country uh, were really issues around the inaccuracy of the role. Uh, and Colin spoke to uh, some of these issues in yesterday's uh, uh, panel as well, um, but these inaccuracies in the role uh, ranged from people not being able to find their names on the role, even though they had voted uh, in 2017, uh, to no use of the role in certain um, polling places as well. Uh, there was just a lack of enforcement of election offenses uh, at polling stations. Uh, so for example, if someone was double voting, um, if candidates were hanging around at polling stations or campaigning near polling um, stations, uh, there was just no enforcement by security forces. Um, really, the response we would uh, hear at the polling stations was more uh, take it to the court of disputed returns. Uh, what we also saw during the election period, and this is pre-polling um, through to polling and post-polling, was uh, a lot of issues around uh, I guess the constitutionality or legality of um, uh, the election law itself. So a lot of non-compliance with the requirements that are set out in our constitution. And of course, the organic law on uh, local level, uh, national and local level government elections. Um, I guess this really points to an issue of how the elections in PNG unfortunately have deteriorated. Um, and we are seeing that uh, this trend continue uh, and you know, this a lot that needs to be done. We've had so many election observation reports that we've put forward, so many recommendations that we've put forward, and unfortunately not enough action um, has been taken to address these issues. Um, so really that's the focus as we move forward in this next five-year um, cycle, uh, is to look at how we can work with the electoral administration body and the government uh, to improve on all these issues uh, that we saw in this election. And I can say that it was by far our most challenging election, um, having observed uh, four of the last um, elections in Papua New Guinea. And uh, Chijay, do you want to tell us a bit about your experiences with the election, where you're observing and what your main takeaways were from what you were seeing on the ground? Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> I was uh, observing with the ANU team in Port Moresby, um, we observed the Port Mosby Northwest electorate. Um, I think pretty much a lot of the same issues that um, Arianne has spoken about, um, mostly to do with the discrepancies and the issues with the common role. Um, we saw that a lot around post Port Mosby Northwest. Um, it was an issue that caused a lot of, I think, um, disgruntled people around the polling stations. Um, really, um, it was disheartening to see that. And I would also like to um, echo again what Ariane has been saying about the same issues that continue to reoccur and happen 
um, things that happened in 2017 election, in the 2012 election, they continue to happen. They continue to happen in the 2022 elections. And um, yeah, I think most of the reports, um, election reports that came out and the recommendations that were given were not heeded at all. And that is the big issue that continues to persist. Yeah, if I can just add uh, uh, what GJ is saying. So last year, we actually had a by-election in Northwest. Mm -hmm. So we got an insight into what to expect in 2022 as well. We saw these issues with the role already and the issues that would come up uh, with one-day polling, um, but we didn't learn the lessons from that by-election that took place nine months before um, this election, this general election. So there's a lot of points of reflection, but what we need is action. And GJ, uh, in Port Moresby, there were a lot of media reports about um, groups that are on the streets in Moresby, especially in the aftermath of the election who, you know, were wielding um, machetes on the streets. Um, can you tell us a bit about how the election looked different in 2022, say, compared to previous elections in Moresby and what might have been some of the factors that were driving that? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, Port Moresby was a very um, unsafe place. Like, I felt really unsafe, and for a very long time, I had not felt like that. Of course, crime is um, a big thing in Port Moresby, but, you know, you're a resident there, and you know how um, to navigate that. But the aftermath of the elections, especially the countings that was delayed and continued to be delayed, um, and the onslaught of violence, it was, I think, compared to other elections, I, I won't say that other elections were not violent, but the violence seen in this election, I feel, was like on a larger scale. Ariane, do you want to talk a little bit about what you were hearing from observers with Transparency International, um, especially in places like Enga that did experience significant um, electoral conflict and violence? Uh, what were some of the things you were hearing from your observers in those locations? I think, um, so we had a uh, election um, toll-free line that was open for uh, people to be able to, first of all, report instances of corruption. Um, but second of all, we saw that there was a gap in information. So if people needed to know where's their nearest polling place or when the day of polling is, if it's open um, or how to get there, then we would help to facilitate that process. Um, and I know the police also had a toll-free line open as part of the National Security Task Force. So trying to channel complaints we were getting through to that um, uh, toll-free as well uh, was something that we were doing. Uh, you know, for the Highlands region, um, it was such a challenge to hear from our observers about, you know, they're observing in a place that they're familiar with. It's their community, it's where they grew up. Um, but to hear how unsafe they felt in their own home um, and to not to be in a position where we were not able to do much because we can call the police, we can call um, the National Security uh, Task Force that's there, but we don't have the manpower to respond to the issues of violence. Um, we had observers uh, traveling between provinces, so they would have to go and stop at a border and wait for um, you know the gunshots to sort of die down, um, commotion to die down, then try to cross into that province. Um, and the thing with, uh, I guess, the Highlands crossing in from province to province, I think if you're an outsider, it's a little bit easier to do that. Um, but I found that generally um, our observers in the Highlands kept to you know their own places. 
when we did the trainings, what was interesting was that when we did the trainings in the Highlands, so I was privileged enough to attend all the trainings in the Highlands, the first thing observers would say is, have you made sure that you've spoken to the provincial administration and the electoral administration body to explain what observers do? Because they felt like people didn't understand the role of observers and that would put them in a um, difficult situation. Um, and on the day, like on the day of polling, obviously in uh, the Highlands, there was a lot of changes that happened as well. So trying to communicate those changes to the observers, trying to get them out, and then trying to consider all the risks, the security risks and their safety. It was just a lot to navigate during that time. Um, generally, our observers just felt that, you know, it just wasn't safe to go out and observe. Um, they, We feel that by wearing the shirt, the TAPNG observer shirt, there is some um, safety around that. Um, but again, you don't want to risk anyone anyone's life. So you, anytime anyone was reporting any instances where there was a fight, um, which was almost all um, at all polling stations, we would advise them to um, just return back home and you know try the next day. Uh, but just the amount of violence, um, the amount of fighting, burning of ballot boxes, kidnapping of um, electoral officials, um, it was really just a lot to take in um, during that two-week period of polling. And Ariane, uh, in PNG, unfortunately, we heard a lot about election-related deaths. Um, do you want to talk a bit about what was reported in the media versus what you were hearing from observers in some of those Highlands locations? Yeah, um, so the media from a couple of weeks ago when we've done a check of you know all the deaths reported in the media, we had around 50 deaths that we were able to count off. Um, but when we look at the reports and the fighting, the level of fighting that happened in these different provinces, um, there seemed to be more lives lost um, during this period. Uh, but we just don't have enough mechanisms in place for reporting of this. And this goes beyond the elections. Outside of the elections, we have issues with collecting data around, you know, how many reports are actually laid at the police station um, and how many deaths um, um, are there. But for this election period, um, killings, deaths um, started as early as, you know, first day of nomination. You know, why are people losing their lives um, for a process that's supposed to be you know, a democratic process that allows us to be able to appoint um, or vote in our, the people that will represent our voices. Um, what's, I guess, unfortunate is that there seems to be an acceptance that this level of violence and experiencing a lot of deaths during the election period is normal for Papua New Guinea. Um, and that's something that I'm really fearful of, this acceptance that, you know, you can have 100 deaths during the election and it's okay because this is part of... Um, the process and it's not and it, we shouldn't accept it um, no one should be dying because you know we're going to vote our leaders um, I know that if we look back uh, and if we can count um, get on the ground and count the number of deaths I'm sure it's going to go over 100 or even 200 deaths um, and that's a very um, confronting um, piece of you know information to hear um, and I know that even today there are still fighting. There's still fighting happening in a lot of provinces, and there's still a lot of deaths that are going unrecorded um, because of this election and the results that have come out of this election. Yeah, and it is very hard to determine uh, what were election-related deaths. A lot of people have been talking about was the violence more so than in 2017 compared to this year. But I guess quantifying those. Um, those deaths and the reasons behind them is often anecdotal and it's hard to get to the bottom of. But 
your point that um, having widespread electoral violence um, for what is really a voting process, people expressing their democratic rights, is a situation that is uh, very difficult to swallow um, in PNG. Yeah, I mean, so yesterday I was talking about the the young mother that got shot um, in Port Mosby, and all that happened was that uh, the polling officials left um, left to go to that polling site very late. So it was like eleven in the morning. Um, going towards lunch. So there was a lot of frustrated people at that polling station and they were shouting at the election officials. Uh, so they had to call more security in and then there um, happened to be a shootout and unfortunately a stray bullet um, hit someone. Um, and, you know, you understand why people were expressing their frustration. Um, I mean, my, I myself had to wait three hours to be able to cast my vote. Um, and I was looking at the sun and thinking, oh, can I really do this? Can I stand this long? Um, but I knew it was important to cast my vote. Um, and then you see what happened, uh, you know, with the shootout. And you just know that, like, you know, in the next election, should you risk your life to go and, you know, exercise your democratic right? That's really the question that you now have to consider. And maybe to um, shift topic a little bit, and GJ, to bring you in on um, women's political participation and especially the women who were elected. And just to preface this discussion, that in 2012, we had three female MPs. And then in 2017 um, elections, there were no female MPs elected. But for 2022, there were two um, female candidates who were successful. How did you see um, women's political participation at this election? And especially about the number of candidates who were able to win seats. Um, could you reflect a bit on how you saw the overall picture and particularly those women who were elected? Yeah, um, women's political participation in Papua New Guinea is, is a big issue. And um, we realize that we need more female um, voices on the floor of parliament. Um, it's, it's, um, I'm happy that we have um, two women elected now, but two is not enough. And the challenges that women have to face um, during elections, um, we were just talking about violence. Um, so we know that the election environment is not really conducive for women to compete in. And we also see that the patriarchal norms that Papua New Guinea has is very challenging for women at the onset. And then we have violence, we have money politics, um, and all these issues that come together that make it really difficult for women to compete in elections. Um, I would like to see some incentive for women, and I really do support, res uh, not reserve seats, but election quotas, some form of gender quota, um, so that we see more women in parliament, but at the moment we don't have that support um, in parliament, so there's no political will but we have to look around at what other approaches we can um, do to, to see more women get into parliament. So that's an issue that we continue to face and we should continue the conversation um, and see what sort of actions we can take um, so that women can, um, there can be the presence of, more presence of women in parliament. Yeah, and GJ, I was gonna ask if we look at PNG and much is made of its you know, significant cultural and ethnic diversity, especially across the country in provinces, regions and districts. So we have uh, Kesi Sawang who was elected in 
uh, Rye Coast. And I, actually, I was fortunate enough to be able to go to Rye Coast for the elections and see just how difficult it was to actually conduct an election in such a rural constituency like the Rye Coast. Then you also had Rufina Peter, who was elected as governor in Central Province. Do you see any... Um, can you help people understand why women might be more competitive in some areas of PNG, like in the southern or the um, Mamasay region or in the islands and maybe compared to the highlands? Like how do you sort of perceive um, women's electoral participation across the country and do we need different approaches for different areas? Yeah, I mean, from um, from my point of view, I would maybe it might be a biased opinion from everyone else's um, uh, thoughts, but... Um, I see that in the highlands it's really difficult for women um, and not to say that in the coast it's not because there are patriarchal societies in the coast as well as some metrilineal societies. But um, in the highlands I've been uh, from observation, I see that it's really, really difficult. Um, for example, I think it was the 2007 elections. I had an aunt that wanted to run for elections, um, but she got a lot of opposition from the village and the community um, saying that she should step aside because there were male relatives that were running. Um, and I don't know if that happens in the coastal area as well, but we can see from the total number of women that have been in um, parliament that we've had only Julie Soso in the highlands who, have been, who has been elected into parliament, but the rest of the... Um, Female politicians have been from the coast. So that's probably something that um, maybe others see, but from my own perception, I, I see that the culture really does affect um, women's political representation. And we often talk a lot about um, handmark, you know, in PNG, the need for leaders to be able to, to produce and be able to deliver for their communities. And I think it's interesting that Kessie Sawang and Rafina Peter, uh, they contested previous elections. And do you have some views, um, GJ, about uh, if you're an aspiring female politician in PNG, um, just how much work and preparation and the time it takes to actually become a competitive candidate in the national elections? Yeah, I mean, I think that not only in Papua New Guinea, but everywhere else, women are held to like a standard that I sometimes feel is ridiculous. Um, why do we have to work harder to get into parliament. Um, I feel like, of course, everyone should have some sort of contribution or evidence of their work um, in their communities, hence the handmark. Um, but I think that w people make it so difficult for women. I mean, why do they have to show the evidence that they're doing this and that in the community? And men don't necessarily have to show that. Of course, they have to... Um, by merely being men, you're already being recognized as a leader in, in the community. But women, you have to work like two, ten times harder to show that. And I feel like it's a, a ridiculous standard that people um, do place on women. But having said that, it is important that women do show their presence in the community. Um, you may not get elected in one election, but keep on working until you get elected in another election. So it's um, yeah, definitely something that women have to continue working on to show their presence that um, they are working in the community. And so for the two elected female MPs um, in this current parliament, uh, what do you think about the pressure and expectations that, that they have as the only two female parliamentarians? 
I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on them. Um, not only are they elected as representatives for their electorates and their communities, but they are also representing women in, in Papua New Guinea. Um, and I think that women before um, also had that burden to carry because we don't have a lot of women in parliament. They really had to step up to that plate as representatives for women as well as um, their own electorate. So it's, I, I do feel like it's something big that they do carry. Yeah, I think I'm just um, reflecting on, you know, when they both got um, elected in and they've basically hit the ground running. So we have uh, Rufina, uh, Governor Rufina Pita that's been able to uh, set up the committees that are required. I'm from Central Province and it is so good. It's such a breath of fresh air um, to have someone from Central Province pushing for um, these structures to be in place. And, um, you know, Rufina's background gives her that um, ability to be able to understand how government structures work and so what are the key things that need to be in place um, in order for her to be able to um, run the province um, effectively. Um, with um, uh, our MP from Rai Coast, um, Kesi Sawang, uh, she's also uh, been very open and honest about uh, all her interactions since day one. And that, again, is a, another breath of fresh air, just to have that ability to, um, you know, be able to contact your MP, um, get information on what they're doing, uh, who they're meeting with and what the priorities are in that particular community. Um, I envy Rai Coast um, for that because they're able to get that. Um, and I do feel that there is immense pressure on the two of them to set a standard. Um, and there is an expectation because they're the only two women that they need to set that standard, which agree, I agree with GJ is very unfair. When we look across at the other, uh, how many is it? 116 MPs that are there. Um, so massive responsibility of burden on the both of them. And you know, my hope is that in this five year period, uh, more Papua New Guineans, not just women, more Papua New Guineans are backing and supporting their efforts. Um, to really uh, do what's best for our country um, and, you know, use that as a platform to get more um, women into parliament in 2027. I also think of the local level government elections that will happen next year, and we really need to push for more women representation at that level as well. Okay, and um, thinking a bit more about the future now, um, Ariane, you talked about it earlier, the issues with PNG's electoral role. Uh, that was something I focused on in my presentation at the State of the Pacific yesterday. Um, where do we go from here? Yeah, um, for the electoral role, you know, we're going to have to start from scratch. Um, we've tried to do updating of the roles um, since 2017 election, I think even um, prior to that in 2012, and we've really struggled with updating the role. Um, we're going to have to start over. Uh, we need to Whatever system, you know, I know there's been a lot of talk about proposing, you know, biometric system. Uh, whatever system it is that we decide um, we want to use um, for the role and to improve uh, people's opportunity to cast their votes, we just need to make sure that it's one that allows people to be to be able to exercise their right to vote. Um, registering on the role in 2022 was not possible for a lot of people. Um, changing their or moving their names from you know one to another was also difficult so there needs to be really a review of that process of updating the role um, 
to date, I have not seen a document that actually outlines how the role is updated. Um, but I do know that there's a period of objection, there's a period of you know, display of the role. Um, so maybe starting with more awareness of what uh, should happen in terms of developing of a new role and what that exercise would look like. And I know that a lot of people are saying, let's move um, even further and start with the census because we haven't had a national census, proper national census in the last 20 years. Um, and we need the census data in order to be able to decide how many more uh, electorates um, can be added on. Um, there are just so many issues and I'm trying to think like, you know, where do we start? Um, we start by first coming together and acknowledging that mm -hmm. it was um, a challenging election. Um, we come together, bring all our findings together and then look at, you know, a five-year plan to address all the issues that came up. Um, we might not be able to cover off all the issues before the next election, but we have to start somewhere. And I think as we talked about earlier that in 2017, uh, a lot was made about the role and how it was already inaccurate. And then if you're updating an already inaccurate and flawed system, um, I can't really see how that's meant to fix the situation. But one thing I'd like to get um, both of your thoughts and reflections on is I was often struck when citizens came to vote and you had a polling official looking through the role and trying to verify names with a voter, just how the large majority of Papua New Guineans don't have any sorts of you know, photo ID or anything to even prove their identity. And I'm thinking here, I went out to uh, Menyamia, um, Wow Warrior, Bololo um, places, quite rural and remote, and particularly given PNG's population is, you know, 85% people live in rural areas. Um, how do you think you can even start to think about having an accurate role where most citizens don't really have a piece of paper or any form of identity? How do we even start to think about this process? Um, so I'd like to think about um, how people actually obtain SIM cards and register um, their SIM cards. So Digicel, uh, Vodafone, Telecom, B-Mobile, They've been able to register everyone that has a SIM card. They take, they have a picture of them, um, and you have to register all these details um, on that system in order to activate your SIM card. If we can do that with a SIM card and you have people in rural areas with phones, why can't we use um, something similar to do the same um, in these um, different places as well? I think we try to think of solutions that are probably outside of um, PNG, um, and we try to look elsewhere for solutions, but we're not looking at the other things that are similar. Um, and I like to think of the example of the SIM card because I know back home in my village, everyone's registered that has a, and has a SIM card. Um, so this I know is something we can do. Um, photo IDs, obviously the national ID project um, hasn't really got enough to a great start in PNG. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done, but if we can register everyone with a SIM card, then I'm sure we can register everyone that's eligible to vote. Um, GJ, your, your, your thoughts on this topic, where do we start with updating the role? Yeah, I mean, I would um, agree with um, Ariane. Um, the NID project, um, it hasn't started off well. And uh, I know a lot of people that are not registered um, or they go and it's such a long process that they probably just give up. So we need something that is easy and accessible to the people. Um, we're about, I don't know if our population is 9 million or 10 million, um, but we do need census on that as well. 
And I think the most important thing is for the government to start now. Like we need to start registering people. We need to start rolling out um, the national census so, so that we know how many people there are, register them. And even if it's 10 million, I don't think that's a lot. There are some cities that have 30 million people, a lot of people. And if they can um, know how many people there are, people are registered, I don't think it's rocket science for our government to get systems in place that are effective and efficient for our people to be registered. And if we can start at the local level and have, um, start at the local level and have people um, counted and numbered, then we can have some place to start off from. But at the moment, if we want to go and <laughs> aim for big things, if we have the biometric system, I don't think it's going to work if we don't register people in the local areas, the villages. We need to reach out to these people. And I think we talked at the beginning about uh, a lot of reports have come out about PNG's elections you know, over 10, 20 years, and they often talk about similar issues that need to be addressed. So we're talking here about electoral reform, but often this reform doesn't happen. And I wondered if you both had thoughts about the people who are elected from this system um, in national parliament. How much is it in their interest to want to reform the system over the next five years? Because they're the ones who've sort of succeeded through this process. So practically speaking, how do we get some you know, real uh, reform, some real action taking place um, before the 2027 national election? I would say we have to start immediately. There's been a lot of statements from a lot of members of parliament because they want to echo the sentiments of the um, people that they represent. Uh, there's been a lot of statements about, you know, we need to um, have complete overhaul of the system. We need to look at the electoral commission. So while there is um, interest from members of parliament, um, we have to jump on and make sure that we keep the attention on that. If we don't do anything this year, unfortunately, we're going to miss the boat um, completely. Um, it is in the, um, and I believe this um, personally, it is in their interest to keep things as they are. Um, so we have to make sure where there are people that are pushing for, you know, you know, the parliamentary committee to be set up. If they've already appointed the person to lead that, we need to be communicating with that member of parliament to look at how we set up this committee and what we need to do. Um, but we just need to keep talking about it keep uh, pushing the people uh, that have made statements um, to actually turn that into action. But we cannot leave it for next year um, or it's just going to be a challenge to you know, bring back on the table for discussion. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. Um, I think that the system benefits a lot, the people that are in power now. And it will take <laughs> a lot to change. I mean, I, when Ariane was talking, I was just thinking about the um, parliamentary committees was it the Special Parliamentary Committee on Gender-Based Violence. And one of the issues they talked about was um, introducing the five reserve seats um, for the five regional seats. And there were a lot of people in parliament that were talking about um, and supporting having women in parliament, ending gender-based violence. But when you're talking about it, you need action to come with that as well. So what we need in PNG is action. Um, and, and we need people to really start doing what is necessary for change. I'd like to thank you both for um, the discussion today. It's been really informative and illuminating. Ariane, all the best with your uh, further work at Transparency International in Port Moresby. And it's been great that you've been able to come to Canberra 
and present your findings. And GJ, it's great to have you in Canberra doing your PhD and we look forward to your research findings um, in the future. That wraps up another episode of the Pacific Wayfinder podcast. You can find more podcasts, analysis and research on our website, pacificsecurity.net. You can also follow the Australia Pacific Security College on LinkedIn, Facebook and Twitter. Join us next time for another episode of the Pacific Wayfinder.